was arrested. He was arrested on the charge of bringing Gentiles into the temple. He was innocent of that. Paul didn't bring Gentiles into the temple uh, at all. But the opposition was such that they wanted any excuse to arrest him and, uh, and oppose him. And the opposition, the threat of opposition was so intense that the, the Romans had to basically cart Paul off from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And there he was kept as a prisoner to keep himself safe from his opponents. The opponents came from Jerusalem to Caesarea to oppose him. And they did that before Felix, the governor of Caesarea. Felix was then uh, replaced by Festus. And then Agrippa, the king, showed up with his sister Bernice, or Bernice, or however he's supposed to say it. And hearing about the apostle Paul, he said to Festus, I want to hear Paul myself. And uh, Festus said, tomorrow you will hear him. And that's where we pick up the story tonight. So Acts 25, and let's begin reading uh, in verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes or tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today and against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs And controversies of the Jews. Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation. And in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify. That according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope. In the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. 
and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me, to this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray together. Give to us 
the help that comes from you. To hear and to heed. To believe and to obey your words. Conform us to the image of your Son. That glory would be given to him. And do that, Father, we ask of you through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reminded this past week of three stories that put our passage tonight in Acts in its place. The first is about a bishop called Bishop Wright. And in the late 1800s, he said, man will never fly. Flight is reserved for the angels. But then on the 17th of December 1903, his eldest son, Wilbur, flew the first powered plane for exactly 12 seconds. All the people before thought that he was crazy, but then afterward thought he was a hero. Christopher Columbus's story isn't all that too dissimilar, is it? In the 15th century, the coins in Spain had these words engraved on them, ni plus ultra, which means no more beyond. And so the people at the time believed that as he set sail on his first voyage across the Atlantic, he was on a one-way journey to the end of the world. But when the journey was successful, the inscription on the coins was changed to simply plus ultra, more beyond. And then there was Robert Fulton, who developed the first uh, steamboat. He put on a, a public demonstration and the crowds gathered to watch him fail. He began to get this steamboat operating and they were chanting, it will never start Never start, never start. And then it started. And they changed their chant to, it will never stop, never stop, never stop. All three men were thought to be crazy. But they had good reason for doing what they did. And you all just heard from our reading in Acts 25 and 26, that the Apostle Paul was thought to have been crazy for his ministry and witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he had good reason for doing what he did. What was that reason? Well, you could boil Paul's defense down to one simple sentence. Jesus changed my life. Jesus changed my life. It's why he said to the Corinthian church, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And our passage breaks down so nicely under three 
simple headings tonight. Paul speaks first of who I was, number two, who I met, and number three, who I persuade. Now, just in case all of you weren't listening before, and I have a sneaking suspicion that some of you checked out during that uh, reminder of the context of our passage. I want to give it to us again. There's a lot to take in. Okay, so back in chapter 21, Paul was arrested. The charge was bringing Gentiles into the temple. He was innocent. But the opposition was such that he had to be taken by the Romans from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And in Caesarea, the Religious establishment, his opponents came down, they made their accusations against Paul, and Paul stood his ground before Felix. Felix gave way to Festus, and Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, came along and they heard all about Paul, and all about how he had appealed to, uh, to Caesar. Why would he have appealed to Caesar? Well, because he wanted to preach the gospel in the very center of the world at the time, that's why. Hearing all about Paul aroused his interest. And so Festus said, tomorrow you'll hear him. And as Agrippa hears him, this is what he hears from Paul. Jesus changed my life. That's his self-defense in a nutshell. Jesus changed my life. But before we come to his defense, I do want to encourage us with this one biblical truth God always vindicates his saints. God always vindicates his saints. That's an encouragement, isn't it? That in the end, when all is said and done, and when human history is rolled up like a scroll, God will vindicate his people. Spurgeon said this, For my part, I am quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years. But the more distant future shall vindicate me. I have dealt honestly before the living God. My brothers do the same. And that's what Paul did here in Acts 25 and 26. From a human perspective, he looked like the most vulnerable man in all of the world, didn't he? There was a gripper, a great potentate with all the pomp that he came with his sister Bernice. There were all the prominent men, the the tribunes or the tribunes of the city. And yet by Paul's side was Jesus Christ himself. And the truth is, friends, no matter how things look here on earth, God will vindicate his people in heaven. They may look like fools, They may sound like men or like women who are out of their minds. But in the end, they will shine like the noonday sun in the glory of the Father. And we can know that and be encouraged by that tonight as the UK is losing its mind. And as the UK becomes more and more evil and more and more anti-God. Friends, we are to maintain perspective. And we are to wait on the Lord. Jesus changed my life, Paul said. And he talks first about who I was. Who I was. Now, I'm not going to reread our passage in its entirety tonight. It's a huge text, isn't it? But in verses 1 to 11 of Acts 26, Paul says to King Agrippa, in essence, O king, I used to be where my persecutors now are. 
I've been there. I've been in their shoes. O king, they claim to observe God's laws and adhere to the Torah. Well, so did I. From my youth, I used to sit at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel. And I was trained in the strictest party of our religion. In fact, that's what I was known for. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. And so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But, O King, not only that, not only have I been where they are, but I used to do what they're doing to me. They're persecuting me for the name of Jesus Christ. Well, that's just what I used to do to believers in Jesus Christ. I I was like a wild animal hunting his prey. And the moment that I picked up on a scent of believers in Jesus Christ, I stopped at nothing until I had them either between my claws or in my teeth. And their blood was on my hands. And their blood was in my mouth. Look again at verse 10. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So what's the takeaway for us tonight? Well, friends, it's simply this. Write no one off. Write no one off. Let Paul's testimony remind you that nothing is impossible for God, and no one is impossible for God. That no heart is too hard. That no mind is too warped. That no feet are too lost, and no eyes are too blind. But instead, let your faith in our sovereign God arise. Let your faith arise, especially for the most lost person You know, friend, put two and two together. If God saved Paul, he can save him or her. And yes, they may well be leading a life that's way more chaotic than yours was when you got saved. But friend, never forget this. They are no more dead in sin than you were when you were saved. Because you can't get more dead than dead. Some of you know that I attended a, a, a pastor's conference recently. Yeah, up in North Wales, and one of the pastors there had just come off a, a sabbatical, and he spent his time studying and reading and re- researching the life of, of John Newton, and so he blessed us all with a, a little bio, biographical sketch of Newton, and it was absolutely wonderful. You remember he described himself, didn't, didn't he, as a debauched, seafaring blasphemer. And in 21st of March, 1748, being just 23 years old, he was on board a ship. And one biographer writes, he awoke that night to a violent storm as his room began to fill with water. And as he ran for the deck, the captain stopped him and had him fetch a knife. The man who went up in his place was immediately washed overboard. He was assigned to the pumps and heard himself say, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. It was the first time he had expressed the need for mercy in many years. He worked the pumps from three in the morning until noon, slept for an hour, and then took the helm and steered the ship till midnight. 
And at the wheel, he had time to think back over his life and his spiritual condition. And that's what he did for two whole weeks. And looking back on those two weeks, Newton himself wrote these words. Before we arrived in Ireland, I had a satisfactory evidence in my own mind of the truth of the gospel and of its exact suitableness to answer all of my needs. I stood in need of an almighty Savior. And such a one I found described in the New Testament. Thus far the Lord had wrought a marvelous thing. I was no longer an infidel. I heartily renounced my former profaneness. I had taken up some right notions. Was seriously disposed and sincerely touched with a sense of the undeserved mercy I had received in being brought safe through so many dangers. I was sorry from my past misspent life and purposed an immediate re reformation. I was quite freed from the habit of swearing, which seemed to have been as deeply rooted in me as a second nature. Thus to all appearance, I was a new man. And yet he wasn't quite a new man. He wasn't yet a new creation in Christ. He wouldn't be converted for another six years. But he got there in the end because no one is impossible for God. So friends, write no one off. Hope for them. Pray for them. Serve them. Minister to them. And be motivated by the kind of glory that would be given to God in their life if they were saved. We all know it's true, don't we? When a, when a proud intellectual is humbled, glory is given to God. When a hedonist is converted and convicted of the vileness of their sin, glory is given to God. And when God takes a terrorist and turns him into a church planter, glory is given to God. And so let their good and let God's glory motivate you to keep on keeping on in your prayers for them and your love and service for them. That's who Paul was. But next he talks about who I met. I can't improve on the way that Paul tells his own story. So look at verse 12 again. In this connection, Paul says, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midnight, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me. And to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentile. Paul says to King Agrippa, O king, here is all my defense. I met Jesus on the Damascus road. That's the sum total of what I have to say. He changed my life. He overcame my resistance to him. And even the sight of him caused all who I was traveling with to fall face down to the ground. And, oh, king, he blinded my eyes, but in a very real sense, he opened my eyes. Because he showed me what I've been doing for all this time that I hadn't been persecuting the church. I'd been persecuting him and having killed My old nature, Jesus, gave me a new nature. And in giving me a new nature, he gave me a new mission for my life. That whereas before I'd been persecuted, Jesus, now I'm a preacher of Jesus. And now I'm an apostle of Jesus and a servant of Jesus. And friend, I just want to stop here and I want to say this. If the mission of your life didn't change when you got saved, you didn't get saved. Jesus will settle for nothing less than everything. He's either your life or he's not in your life. Jesus won't settle for one hour on a Sunday morning, one hour on a Sunday evening. He's everything or he is nothing to you. And it's actually fascinating when Paul describes his post-conversion life. He talks about his ministry in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the Gentiles. The same concentric circles that Jesus promised to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What's the point? Well, the point is this. Paul's mission was Jesus' mission. It was one and the same. And friends, Jesus has a mission for his church today because the need back then is the need now. People are in darkness today. People are held captive to Satan today. People need the forgiveness of their sins today and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Friends, can I say this? Far too much is at stake for us to be a church not on mission. The masses who surround us need their eyes open. And they must turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. They must have their chains broken. And so how can we get on Jesus' mission? Well, we can get on Jesus' mission by walking closely with Jesus. 
Because the reality is, the more we love him, the more we speak of him. And the less we love him, the less we speak of him. And if you'd say to yourself, Hugh, I I do love the Lord Jesus. I just don't know what to do or where to start. To to you, I would say this, friend, share your testimony. Isn't that what Paul did here? He gave his own account of how Jesus changed his life. And don't sit there and think to yourself, well, yeah, Hugh, if I had a testimony like Paul's testimony, I'd have my own YouTube channel. I'd be telling everyone about my testimony. My testimony is boring. I was just raised in the church, got saved, and that's, that's about it. Friend, let me tell you this. That's the exact testimony I want for both of my girls. And there is no boring way to be raised from the dead. And the most powerful testimony you could ever share is your own, because it's yours. And when you share your testimony, there's a level of authenticity that could never belong to me as I seek to share your story with others. Well, to you unbelievers here, let me say this, too much is at stake for you not to get saved and for you not to repent and for you not to perform deeds in keeping with your repentance. And the reality is only Jesus can open your eyes. And only Jesus can transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And only Jesus can forgive you of your sin. And so don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your parents. Don't trust in your friends. Trust in him and go to him for forgiveness. Well, Paul speaks lastly of all about who I persuade. Who I was, who I met, and who I persuade. Just look again, friends, at verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said, and you remember Festus was the governor of Caesarea, with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Jesus changed my life, Paul said. And we've heard him speak about who he was, who he met, and then last of all, who I persuade. Who did Paul try to persuade? Everyone. (laughs) Whether in a short time or in a long time. Whether in a synagogue or in a marketplace. Whether as a free man 
or as a prisoner in chains. And so as I draw this message to a close, I want to speak to those of you who, like the Apostle Paul, would love to persuade everyone. And I have two words of counsel for you. The first is this, anticipate rejection. Anticipate rejection. Paul was rejected here. Don't be surprised if you're rejected too. I really do believe that we all suffer from chronological snobbery. A little bit more than, uh, than, we, than we think. What is, uh, what is chronological snobbery? Well, chronological snobbery is, is the idea that people back then in the past were simple but now we're complicated. So we think to ourselves, yeah, well, obviously they believed Paul's gospel back then. But today, things are much more complicated. But look at the way that Paul was spoken to here. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. People didn't believe that virgins could have babies back then any more than they believe they can today. People back then didn't believe that dead men get up after three days and walk out of their tomb any more than they believe today. And that's why Paul was rejected in Athens. What does this babbler wish to say? And the gospel has always been a stumbling block, hasn't it? To those who are perishing. Why then should we be surprised if we're treated the way Paul was? Anticipate rejection, but also anticipate encouragement. Because friends, there is good reason to believe that as you pray and as you consistently share the gospel, men and women will repent and they will turn and they will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why many of you who are consistent in sharing the gospel with others all have stories of people who have come to faith in and through your personal witness. I got a text message uh, a week or so ago from someone who by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone was converted through uh, the ministry that God gave me some years ago. And on this text message, he sent me a link. And the link was to his very first Sunday morning sermon. And it was glorious. And there were no words that could surmise the encouragement that that gave to me. But what's more, friends, there's also a kind of encouragement that we can know in rejection as well. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because Jesus said this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friend, if you are rejected for the gospel of Jesus Christ, find a room, make sure no one is watching, and do a little dance. Because what it means is that you're in the company of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, and Jesus himself. A man who is despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, finally, to those of you who are unbelievers. Maybe you feel the way about the gospel that Festus 
thought about the gospel, that it's nothing more than a message that belongs to mad men and mad women. Well, friend, that is not the way that Festus thinks about the gospel anymore. In fact, Festus now considers himself to be the madman for rejecting so great a savior. Friend, don't make the mistake that he did. We don't know the end of his story. And I don't know the end of your story. But make sure you find yourself not in hell, but in heaven with Jesus. And in his name, amen.